Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Big news out of the Department of Justice this week. DOJ prosecutors investigating leaks during the Trump administration subpoenaed Apple for data from at least two Democratic representatives on the House Intelligence Committee. Meanwhile, former White House counsel Don McGahn testified before the House Judiciary Committee and had some notable things to say about the pressure Trump put on him during the Russia probe. In other news, Attorney General Merrick Garland outlined DOJ's plans to protect the right to vote, which includes expanding the department's civil rights division. Preet Bharara and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, use the code JOYCE for 50% off the annual membership price. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. We're looking at a situation where we know Apple turned over information on Congress people and, and their families and their staff. And my question is this. Was it a direct subpoena that targeted them directly, or was this incidental collection? Were there other subpoenas where DOJ was looking at folks that they had identified as potential leakers, and in looking at their communications, the names of Congress people suddenly popped up? I think that there are still issues either way. And and I'll just say that had I had a situation like that where I saw a congressperson's name popping up, I would have given the Attorney General of the United States a phone call and said, hey, not for nothing, but uh, we have uh, incidentally collected some information on Adam Schiff in the course of an otherwise legitimate information. Because ultimately, that sort of collection is disclosed, right? DOJ, and you know it is. That's how we're finding you, out about you it know, now. right? But yeah. DOJ delays it here. But even at the time that, that those names first popped up, prosecutors knew that this day would come. And the first phone call that I would have made would have been to the attorney general because as a prosecutor, I don't want to be holding the bag for that when it comes out. I want to make sure everybody in my chain of command understands what's happening. I think it's really strange that this didn't happen here. So it depends on what you believe. If you take the position that Rosenstein and Sessions and Barr are telling the truth and they didn't know about the involvement of Swalwell and Schiff Records— then I think it's the second of the two possibilities that you mentioned, that it wasn't direct collection from Swalwell and Schiff and others, but it was incidental, meaning hypothetically, let's say there was a person under suspicion who's a mid-level staffer on the intelligence committee and other people have, have mentioned this hypothetical. And so you request information relating to that staffer and you find out what communications that staffer had with other people and then you get you know 100 phone numbers or 200 phone numbers or 200 iMessage accounts whatever the case may be. And among those are communications with, you know, Schiffer and Swalwell and perhaps even other members of the committee. But at the time, you know, you, you get the listing of those contacts. Maybe you don't know, depending on how you've sought the information, you don't know who, who that contact information belongs to. And then you seek information about that contact. And then you find out it's Eric Swalwell or Adam Schiff or whoever at which point it doesn't look like it went any further. And at which point, as you say, regardless of where you're going from there, you would probably let the attorney general know. So 
I don't have full confidence that they're telling the truth either because, you know, there's there's discrepancies in the reporting between this discrepancy between what the press reports Bill Barr did and insisted on with respect to persisting in the leak investigation, even though nothing good was coming up, and what Bill Barr himself says. So I think both possibilities are there. Exactly. And that's what I find to be difficult to reconcile here. This investigation starts in 2017 under Jeff Sessions. Look, I'm I'm just going to say I don't have any difficulty believing that Sessions could have been briefed on this and not fully understood the implications of it. <laughs> right. um, ooh, did I really just say that? Okay. Well, I did. Um, you did. You can. You're, you're from Alabama. Here's the problem. It lingers for three years. It doesn't look like it's a productive investigation. Nobody gets indicted. And they're still, you know, imposing what what the press has called a gag order. I'd call it a non-disclosure order. And then Bill Barr brings in a prosecutor from New Jersey who has no experience doing leak investigations, brings him down to Washington and lets him take another look at this as though he doesn't have any bigger fish to fry in the Justice Department than a three-year-old leak investigation that's been unproductive, but that seems to be something that would tickle the president to, to learn that it's being continued. Yeah, but the weird thing is, if you believe Barr and others that they didn't know about this information being sought, what kind of briefing, if any, were they giving the president on this? Other than to say... We're continuing with the leak investigation, Mr. President. You know, don't worry about it. I mean, they seem to be disclaiming a lot of things here. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a theme here, right? Always the audience of one, pacifying Trump, the kind of behavior that no attorney general should ever engage in. Because what it points to is the conclusion that no matter whether these were direct or indirect subpoenas, how the details play out, that this points to the politicization of DOJ and also a willingness to violate separation of powers, that reserved line between the executive branch and Congress in order to keep Trump happy. Yeah, it's it's hard. You know, this is one of those situations where lots of people are asking questions. You and I go on television to answer some of these questions. We do this podcast. There's just a lot we don't know. And, you know, we speculate about it, and maybe there's something that we're missing here. But I think what's really important, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing the department yet, but I will say that in the context of the information being sought, the significance of the people from whom it was sought, lots of questions about what the guidelines are, what the boundaries are, lots of confusion. I think the department has to figure out a way that's appropriate and consistent with grand jury secrecy and everything else to explain because it's very confusing. Now, one thing that we mentioned that has happened is that I think it was our friend Lisa Monica, who's the deputy attorney general, has asked for an IG, an inspector general investigation of all of this. Uh, and I think the inspector general has agreed to do so. That's great. You know, we talked about IG reports here on the show all the time over the years, but that takes a long time. It's a very laborious process. That's months and months and months away from our seeing anything, right? And then the question is, is there some other thing, even before Jerry Nadler and his committee get to work, that Merrick Garland or some other official from DOJ can explain? I, th I think they have to say something, don't you? I really do. And, and I've actually spent the weekend writing a piece on this that I'm still working on. But increasingly, I've come to the view that Merrick Garland has an opportunity here. 
he has got to make a lot of difficult decisions while he's attorney general, more so, I think, than the usual attorney general because of the situations that he has inherited. And this is his opportunity to become a trusted voice in American society. He's There's been a lot of criticism of him over the last couple of weeks. First, it was the failure to disclose an unredacted version of the Barr memo, which you and I discussed more recently, it's been his decision to continue to try and defend Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case. He surely has strong institutional reasons for making those decisions, whether you agree with them or not. But instead of coming out and explaining why DOJ is taking those positions, he's just let it go out into the ether and really suffered unnecessary criticism. So here, he could engage in transparency with the public. As you say, DOJ can't talk about the details of ongoing investigations for a lot of really good reasons, but he can explain process. He can talk about what they're doing to get their arms around whatever it is that's buried inside of the portfolio that they inherited from Bill Barr. In fact, I saw yesterday a statement where he referenced the fact that he had asked Lisa Monaco to engage in a top-to-bottom review of the cases at DOJ to surface any problem cases. That's an important thing for people to know. He can share details regarding these subpoenas. I'm not sure that there's any reason in this situation with a closed case to be so hesitant to come forward with more facts, unless maybe there's some sort of crazy ongoing leak investigation here that we don't know anything about on on other people. There is a lot of good that comes from telling the truth. There's a lot of hesitation at DOJ to over-engage with the public, to share details in a way that might compromise cases. And of course, there's the recent example of Jim Comey that still hangs over everybody's head. But but now is the time to go ahead and do something different and bold. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. I think everything you said is correct. And one of the things that I think DOJ can answer is the question you posed at the beginning, which is, was this a direct targeting of members of Congress for their information? Or was it incidental? I don't know that you violate anything by making sort of a general statement about the fact that, you know, there, there were particular people whose information was targeted. And then as happens in investigations, leak investigations, and other kinds of investigations, that there was incidental collection and we're going to engage in this review, et cetera. Now, what's interesting about the Attorney General's statement that you referred to is he repeats again that he directed that the Inspector General conduct an investigation. As I said, that's going to take a long time And then as you also pointed out, he's directed Lisa Monaco, who he says, quote, is already working on surfacing potentially problematic matters deserving high-level review to evaluate and strengthen the department's existing policies and procedures for obtaining records of the legislative branch, end quote. But there is no commitment there that they will come forward and explain everything. And one possibility is, and I don't know what you think of this, is that through no fault of their own, they were caught a little flat-footed by this. I mean, some people have raised the question, why is it that we're finding out about the seeking of this sensitive information from Apple as the gag orders or the non-disclosure orders are expiring rather rather than from the department itself who should have been ahead of it? And it's not clear to me, you know, how much information, since they've been there a short while, they have in their possession. Are they getting ahead of the fact that, you know, we might be finding out in the coming weeks and some of these officials have been saying this on social media, that many other people probably had their information sought and that their non-disclosure 
orders with respect to that information as well. Do you think that they didn't really know the full scope of this? And part of the reason why they're not coming forward and explaining is they're trying to get a handle on it. I've been really curious about that. And and the question was, did Merrick Garland learn about this uh, on the front page of the New York Times, like the rest of the country? The reporting that I've heard on that, and I don't know, obviously, what the source is, was Rachel Maddow when she broke the story, discussed it um, Thursday night on, on her show, and she indicated that Garland had found out about it with the rest of the country. I'd like to know more about that because as these sort of gag orders expire, typically as a prosecutor, you're aware that that's going to happen. I mean, maybe you have a lot going on and you don't notice but there were Congress people involved here. You got to put and it in you your would, calendar sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you think somebody would have given the brand new attorney general a heads up? So that raises all kinds of questions, right? Was it just inadvertent or was there an ongoing deliberate effort to conceal these cases? That seems a little bit far-fetched, but we just don't know. You know, think, thinking about my own question for another minute and looking back at the statement that I read from the attorney general, I do get the sense that there's a hint that they don't know what other time bombs are sort of lurking in the department, right? Because he doesn't just say that the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, is conducting a review of this issue relating to the obtaining of information from members of Congress, but I'll say it again. Lisa Monaco, who is already working on surfacing potentially problematic matters deserving high-level review— suggests they don't know what's below the surface (laughs) and they don't know what other kinds of things were put in place or that were operational before they took over. And, you know, as we we do know that the transition process was not wonderful and smooth and there was a fight about the election up until the last day. And so the kind of briefing about sensitive matters and ongoing matters that normally takes place maybe didn't. Now, the counter to that, and I'm curious what you think about this, the reporting is that there are multiple officials including the former and outgoing chief of the National Security Division, John Demers, had information about this, knew about the leak investigation, and should have and would have been in a position to brief the new leadership. And people are asking the question, should they be removed from office? That seems to me to be a situation where um, the devil is in the details, right? We just don't know exactly what happened, whether there were briefings or not, I think it's important, obviously, for Merrick Garland to figure that out. But beyond just this subpoena matter, and without thinking very hard, there are a number of situations that if you're coming into DOJ and and taking over the portfolio that you need to know about, there's the investigations that our former colleague John Cooper out in Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. And for a limited time, use the code Joyce for 50% off the annual membership price. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.